Welcome back to the South Harbor Church Podcast. South Harbor is a part of the Harbor Churches, which exist to help people find their way back to God. This week, as we continue our study from the life of Joseph in Genesis, Pastor Tim takes a step back and looks at some of the larger context in the story. As always, for more information about how you can become a part of the South Harbor Church community, stick around after the message. Now, let's head over to Pastor Tim. It's good to see you. Uh, My name is Tim, and uh, I am always excited to share the scriptures with you all. And um, if you have a Bible, I want to invite you to turn to me to Genesis chapter 44, We are going to continue our now uh, nine-month study of the book of Genesis. We're in chapter 44. We're on the home stretch of it all. And uh, uh, two weeks ago, last I spoke, uh, I took you into the weeds, and I said, hey, we're going into the weeds, and I'm really sorry, but we're going into the weeds. And, uh, And people said to me that, some of you said to me, we like going into the weeds I'm sorry for those of you who didn't, but you didn't speak up. So we're going back into the weeds. I had two versions of the sermon. Uh, this is the one where I bring you back into the weeds. Um, I, uh, uh, this will be, for those of you who are on edge because you don't, uh, history. Uh, this will be the light version. So I'll still give the light version of the weeds. Um, I've been working on a much longer project uh, with a good friend of mine, um, Jeremy Cruz at Fairhaven Church. Uh, and uh, at some point, uh, we will look at geography and roads, and we'll spend uh, probably like a Saturday or something together. For those who want it, uh, we'll let you know. Um, uh, I find, I'm finding it really interesting how the Israelites entered the land, and uh, Joshua, when he enters the land, isn't just like randomly going to places, but he's got a strategy. He's actually, so he's a man of faith, but he's also a pretty brilliant military general, and he's lining his troops. It's, for those who are interested, we'll wait until the, the weather turns and the lion season is over. Um, so whenever the Super Bowl is, sometime after that, maybe. <laughs> yes, that's when our season will be done this year. Uh, but for today, uh, let's go into the weeds. Um, before we do, let me give you my simple premise, and then you can tune me out if you want. But this is the simple premise, uh, is that fear, when we're afraid, fear makes us betray our values. Yeah, when we're afraid of what may happen, um, of what people may think about us, of, uh, of the consequences of something we've done that we might get caught, like found out, uh, when we're afraid of a group of people that we don't know or we don't understand, um, often when we're afraid, the values we hold the dearest to us, the, the deepest values, namely to love God and love others, those values, uh, it's, it's when we are afraid that we're most likely in jeopardy of sacrificing our values and doing things that even will then justify to ourselves, well, it's, this is different because uh, when we're afraid, we um, often betray our values. So that's the premise. Um, now to get at that, I want to nerd out. For those of you who want to nerd out a little bit, let's, uh, we'll nerd out at the front and at the end, okay? So um, I, I'd love to do a little bit of a recap. I know not all of us um, have been here. This may be your first Sunday. We're glad you're with us. Uh, some of you, like summers are hard to come to church, and so you're back for the first time in a while. Let me give you our recap, and I always love to find a way to give the recap that's a little different than the last time we've done the recap. So this time, let's do the recap with some maps. My, my favorite thing. Let's show some maps. Uh, the first map I want to show you, this is a satellite image. There we go. Satellite image of the ancient Middle East, also known as the ancient Near East. 
Uh, this is the ancient Middle East. This land over here is Israel. Um, you've got Egypt over here. This is the ancient Middle East. Uh, the biblical story takes place largely in this territory. Uh, this is modern-day Turkey. Um, that's where the gospel will go out into in the New Testament. But most of the Bible takes place here. The Bible begins, and God says, I'm looking for someone to partner with. Who's going to take the, my mission seriously to bless everybody else? And right out of the gates, we see failure after failure after failure. Adam and Eve, fail. Uh, Cain and Abel, fail. Noah, fails. So then God finds a man named Abram. He'll later be Abraham. He is from here. He's living in a city called Ur of the Chaldeans, and he's living here. And God says, Abram, I'm going to work with you and through you to bless everyone. I'll bless you with, remember the three, with children, with land, and with influence, if you will follow me in blessing everyone. And then you get this, this line. Uh, God says to Abram, I, uh, I want you to bless. I'm going to give you a good land. Because that's the language. I'm going to give you a good land. Deuteronomy uh, says, For the Lord, the Lord your God is bringing you into a good land. Here's the question. Why is this the good land? Now, um, pay attention to the map. Uh, especially the colors. You kind of see the mountain ranges. Um, but especially the colors of the map. Notice the green. Uh, green is good land. Uh, the this land is good land. Uh, let me show you another map that gives a little better scale. Uh, so the green is, uh, this is the Nile River. Every year the Nile River floods, and when it recedes after the rainy season, it leaves behind this really good farmland. You can build a civilization in Egypt. You can build a civilization here. You can build an empire here. And this land... This land uh, exchanges hands by numbers of empires in the ancient world um, because you've got two rivers, the Tigris and the Euphrates, and you can build an empire in this land. So why is this referred to in the Bible as a good land? Why would God have Abraham leave what, what is easy farmland? You can build a civilization here. And have him go to a land that is hard. Uh, the book of Isaiah, Isaiah 44 says that Israel is a dry and thirsty land. It is. You can farm in Israel, but it is not easy to farm. It's a land of mountains and valleys. You can farm in the valleys, but it takes a lot of work. It's not easy. It's not easy land. Uh, why would the Bible refer to this land, though, as good land? It's really hard to grow a civilization in Israel, even to this day, with modern technology. It's hard. So why would God refer to this land as good land? That's the question we should be asking when we read Genesis, the beginning of Genesis. Like, why does God have him start here? Of all the places he could influence, why here? Now to get at that, you still with me? Okay, to get at that, let me show you another map, cleaner map. Uh, you can kind of see the other map on this, right? It's just a cleaner map, not a satellite map. Uh, you've got your Tigris, you've got your Euphrates, you've got your Nile River, you've got the land of Israel. Um, now, let me show you another map and see if you can guess what this one is. What are the red lines? Any guesses? Playgrounds? Oh, trade routes. I thought you said playgrounds. I was like, 
Yeah, okay. Uh, so both of you are right. Uh, these are the ancient roads. Uh, by roads, I mean international highways. The two major international highways the Bible is going to mention and the, the, the Bible is, is going to actually reference a lot even when they don't mention it by name uh, is this road. Uh, this is known right here as Horus's road or the way of the Philistines. Um, that shows up in Exodus 13 when the Israelites are leaving. Uh, but this road, as it comes around, is known as the Way of the Sea or the Via Maris. Via Maris. It's a major trade route uh, going all the way out here. Uh, the other major road is the King's Highway. It runs on the other side of a mountain range in what is known as the Transjordan, on the other side of the Jordan. Uh, and so you've got... The, the King's Highway, which also they connect right here in Damascus. Paul is on a road to Damascus. They connect here, and then they go out into the world. Now let me zoom in on Israel. Uh, so you see Via Maris. You see the King's Highway. All of these other little roads. So if these are the international highways, these are what are referred to in your Bible as the byways. Okay, so you have the highways and the byways. You've heard that before? Right? The highways and the byways. These are the byways. These are local roads. And when I say roads, uh, in our head, we think uh, M6 and Byron Center Avenue. You kind of have to erase that image. Okay? So it's, the local roads are not much more, most of the time, more than footpaths. The main one that shows up in your Bible is known as the Patriarch's Way, named after Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And it runs along the, the top the watershed line of, a, of the Judean mountains right here. This is the Patriarch's Way. It connects Bethlehem and Jerusalem, uh, or Hebron, Bethlehem, Jerusalem, all the way up to Shechem and on. Okay, so the roads. Now, again, why the roads? And someone's already, you've already named it. Why the roads? Uh, because if your goal is to, why is this a good land? If your goal is to build an empire, you build your empire in Egypt you build your empire in ancient Mesopotamia by the Tigris and Euphrates, where the land is easy. If your goal is world dominance, you want to make sure life is comfortable. You want to make sure you can, you can grow crops quite easily. You want to build your land where things are green. But if your goal, is that, is that Abraham's goal? No. God said to Abraham, I want you to bless the world. I want you to influence the world. If your goal is world influence, you build your land here. Why? Because of trade. If Egypt wants to trade, they've got uh, gold and linen. Okay, that's one of their major exports. They want to trade with China, who's silk. They have to pass through this land. Uh, Babylon, there we go. Babylon wants to trade. Uh, they've got slaves. They want to trade some slaves. They've conquered the world. They've got some slaves. They want to trade with Egypt. Egypt wants slaves. They're trying to build the pyramids. Uh, Egypt's going to trade, and it's got to pass through here. Uh, the Hittites have bear. There's bear up there. They want to trade some bear. I don't know why, but they want to trade. Actually, horses were a big export for the Hittites. They want to trade with Egypt. You, all roads go through Israel. Whoever controls the roads controls the ancient world. Similar to our day, whoever controls the money controls the world. Um, but for Israel, it wasn't so much about controlling the money, but 
God puts his people on the crossroads of the world where they're going to bump into Egyptians and Babylonians and Assyrians. And God gives them a message. And that message, if you're going to place the message anywhere, you place the message here. So Abraham leaves Ur of the Chaldeans. God says, go to the land. He probably goes around the Arabian desert up this way on the trade route. And he comes in, either comes down the King's Highway or he comes down the Via Maris and he comes into the land and he establishes, the, he stops. He stops at a big tree. Does anybody remember where this big tree is located? Okay, this is my uh, side life mission. Okay, my, my life mission is I would love for you to know Jesus I would love for you to know Jesus. My side life mission is I think that uh, we can become so detached from a sense of place in the Bible and we can just read right over these details because they don't mean anything to us. Um, But the soil holds the story often. Often what you're going to find is a place is mentioned and that place will get mentioned later and later and later and later. And there's something Jesus will do 1,500 years after the story that actually is connected back to the original mention of the story. The the soil holds the story. We kind of understand how that's true in our culture. You go to Gettysburg and you tell a certain story at Gettysburg, right? Like the soil holds the story. The place Abraham, when he leaves, Ur of the Chaldeans, Genesis 12 tells us he, he makes his first stop at a city called Shechem. Shechem. Maybe never heard that word before. We've read it, but maybe never. It's a major player in our, in our Bible. I'll, I'll give you a couple stories, but there's dozens of stories that take place in Shechem. He goes to Shechem. God says to him, okay, you're in Shechem. You're in the land. Let me remind you of the mission. And by the way, you're going to bump into some other people in the land who don't want you in the land. They're called Canaanites. When you beat, meet these Canaanites, I need you to be careful You're going to become afraid. If you become afraid, you may find yourself compromising your values. Don't forget the mission, Abraham. Don't forget the mission. Uh, Now, okay, so let's let's zoom in a little bit. Uh, Abraham makes, he stops at Shechem. He heads down south further. He has a son named Isaac who has a son named Jacob who has a son named Joseph. We've been rehearsing and telling the Joseph saga now for a couple of weeks. Uh, Joseph... Um, is, uh, it's, it's, again, it's easy to read over the details. Uh, but Joseph has a dream, and in the dream, uh, he says to his brothers and his dad, someday you guys are going to bow down to me. And they say, oh, no, you didn't. And so they, uh, they want to get rid of Joseph. If you remember the story, Joseph begins, uh, he's down in Hebron. With his, There we go. He's down in Hebron, and he... Uh, his dad, he says to his dad, like, okay, or dad says to him, I need you to go find your brothers. Your brothers, dad says, are in Shechem. So he makes his way, most likely down the patriarch's road. He gets to Shechem. Where are my brothers? He sees a dude. A dude says, oh, 10 dudes? Yes, 10 guys. I, where are they? they? I was supposed to meet them in Shechem, but I can't find my brothers. Oh, we saw those 10 guys. They went over to Dothan. Now again, who cares? Why these three names? 
Uh, geographically, they're just, they're not far apart at all. It's a couple of miles between Shechem and Dothan. Why does it matter for our story? Because Shechem is along the local byway. Then there's a mountain range. If you're on the international road, you don't see Shechem. But if you come over the mountain range and you're in Dothan, guess who you see? Everyone. And so along comes a group of Midianites because that's where you come. They're coming down the trade route. And the brothers say, oh, let's sell you to the Midianites. And so they exchange a deal. They sell Joseph off to the Midianites who then bump into the Egyptians. You guys want a slave? We can turn a quick buck here. You can, we'll sell you this kid Joseph. So he goes over to the Egyptians, and eventually makes his way in Egypt, where in Egypt he climbs the ranks pretty fastly. And uh, and again, we've told the story. He becomes the right-hand man of Pharaoh, the king of Egypt. Uh, And because of a plot he puts together to store the crop while the Nile is flooding, let's store the excess When a famine comes, the whole world looks to Joseph, uh, looks to Egypt to be fed. And that includes Joseph's own brothers. Um, Joseph's brothers uh, sell him into slavery. Um, Joseph rises to the ranks, not unlike, (laughs) never mind. I was going to say, not unlike the ram sold Goff to the lions and then he climbed to the... (laughs) I'm not talking about the lines. Uh, (laughs) You're going to always look at the story different now. Um, I show you Rhodes, but then I tell you Goff. Um, Joseph recognizes his brothers. Remember the story? He sees them. He's like, I know who you are. But they don't recognize Joseph. He doesn't look like them anymore. He looks like an Egyptian. Shaved head, shaved beard, shaved face. He looks like an Egyptian. He walks and he talks like an Egyptian. I I imagine he's like going around like this, right? (laughs) Probably not actually doing that, but I, if you get to heaven and you see a dude just walking around like this, you're like, Joseph, I got you. Uh, Joseph is like fully Egyptian now, and the brothers come to him. They don't recognize him. He recognizes them, and they need food. And so he says, but wait a minute. You've got someone else in your family, don't you? Yeah. Oh, you got a brother, a kid brother. Benjamin? Yeah. Bring him to me. Joseph knows their story. They can't cover it up. So they go back down the trade route, back home to Hebron, and then they come back, this time with their kid brother, Benjamin. And that's where our story picks up. Verse 44. Or sorry, Genesis 44. Verse 1. Now Joseph gave these instructions to the steward of his house. Fill the men's sacks with as much food as they can carry and put each man's silver in the mouth of his sack. But then put my cup, the silver one, in the mouth of the youngest one's sack, along with the silver for his grain. And he did as Joseph said. Let's pause here. It's one of those interesting details that's easy to read over. Joseph reiterates and make sure you put the silver cup. Uh, in Hebrew, it's the word kesef. Uh, in fact, that word kesef shows up in this story 20 times. Kesef, 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 kesef. Uh, it's almost like the author is trying to draw our attention to it. Genesis 37, uh, Joseph's brothers sell him for 20 pieces of kesef. Joseph is betrayed for kesef, for silver, and now he's going to be tested with silver. Verse 3. 
As morning dawned, the men were sent on their way with their donkeys. They had not gone far from the city when Joseph said to his steward, Go after those men at once. When you catch up with them, say to them, Why have you repaid good with evil? Isn't this the cup my master drinks from and also uses for divination? This is a wicked thing you have done. It's a trap. When he caught up with them, he repeated these words to them, but they said to him, Why does my Lord say such things? Far be it from your servants to do anything like that. We even brought back to you from the land of Canaan the silver we found inside the mouths of our sacks. So why would we steal silver or gold from our master's house? If any of our servants is found to have it, he will die. And the rest of us will become your Lord's Lord's slaves. They're confident. We would never do this. Why would we steal from the the right-hand man of Pharaoh? We would never do this. We would never do this. We don't need silver. We need food. Silver can't feed us. We need food. It's a famine. We even brought you back the silver we had. We don't need silver. We need food. We're confident nobody took it. Search the bags. Whoever whoever took it, kill him. The rest of us will become slaves. Now, those of us who know where the story's going, as every good Michigander would say, oh, Very well then, he said. Let it be as you say. Whoever is found to have it will become my slave. The rest of you will be free from blame. Each of them quickly lowered his sack to the ground and he opened it. Then the steward proceeded to search, beginning with the oldest, ending with the youngest. The suspense grows. And the cup was found in Benjamin's sack. Boom, boom, boom. At this, they tore their clothes and they all loaded their donkeys and they returned to the city. Joseph was still in the house when Judah and his brothers came in and they threw themselves to the ground before him. Joseph said to them, what is this you have done? Don't you know what a man like me, can, that a man like me can find things out by divination? Divination or, <laughs> or planting evidence? Yeah, basically same thing. Uh, what can we say to my Lord, Judah replied. What can we say? How can we prove our innocence? God has uncovered your servant's guilt. We are now my Lord's slaves. We ourselves and the one who was found to have the cup. But Joseph said, far be it for me to do such a thing. I'm so gracious. Only the man who was found to have the cup will become my slave. The rest of you, go back to your father in peace. Let's pause here. What's Joseph doing here? Does he not like Benjamin? Why well, set him up? What, does he not like him? Now, if you know the story, he loves Benjamin. In fact, remember this moment last week where he sees Benjamin for the first time in years and he can't control it. He's so emotional that he has to run away and he cries and then he collects himself and he comes back out to them. Uh, remember, he, he gives all of the brothers some food, but he gives Joseph five times the amount of food. This is his kid brother, The only brother he has with the same mom, his mom, Rachel. He loves Benjamin. So why does it feel like he's setting his brother up? Planting the evidence in his stuff. Why why do that? Two theories. Theory number one. uh, Perhaps it's because Joseph wants to protect Benjamin. He wants to protect him. Uh, After all, Dad made, remember, dad made Joseph the Bahor, the firstborn. He gave him that extra, that was what was behind the Technicolor dream coat. Like he gave him the coat. He's now in charge. And, uh, and it was because he was the oldest of Rachel. But now that he's out of the picture, who's the oldest of Rachel? Benjamin. Will they do 
to Benjamin what they did to me. And so maybe he's thinking, I got to protect him. I have to protect my brother. Even if I have to lie and cheat and and swindle my way, manipulate my way to do it, I've got to protect him. I got to portray my values in order to protect my brother. Maybe maybe that's what's going on here. That's the first theory. Second theory is uh, maybe it's all just a test. Uh, Maybe Joseph wants to see how his brothers are going to respond. And so he he, uh, pampers Benjamin with five times the food. Is this going to make you jealous? Remember when I got a, a special coat, a second coat? You got jealous of me? Will you get jealous if Benjamin gets five times the amount you got? And then he, uh, he gives him special privileges. Will you, when you find your brother has the cup in his sack, will you sell him out? Will you look at each other and be like, oh, he's rotten just like his brother Joseph. He's trying to climb the ranks. I don't care, if it, like Joe, whoever you are, I kill him. Yeah, that's fine, kill him. We don't like him anyway. We'll explain it to dad. Is it all like Joseph is willing to lie and swindle and manipulate the situation as a way to test his brothers? Which is it? Maybe both. I don't know. It feels like both are plausible. Also, put yourself in Benjamin's shoes. Benjamin doesn't really say anything in this whole story. He's just the the pawn in the whole plot. Brings me back to my premise. Fear will get us to compromise our values. When we're afraid, we do things and we will say things and we will sacrifice things that we would never do, we would never think we would do if we weren't afraid. Um, I have little kids and uh, my kids are perfect, but like hypothetically, um, (laughs) let's say one of my kids lied to me. It happens, right? Parents, it happens. And uh, let's say, I'll flush it out a little more. Let's say I have my two kids are fighting over a toy. That happens too, right? And they both want the same toy. And so as a parent, you say, hey, I need you to share the toy. Um, and they won't do it. So I say, fine, you get the toy for 10 minutes, and then you get the toy for 10 minutes. And uh, so the one kid's got the toy for 10 minutes, and the clock runs out. And so you say, okay, time to give over the toy. And they say, I don't have the toy. I don't know where the toy went. The toy disappeared. Is this far-fetched? Uh, it's just, it's just, my kids are perfect. Um, right? Like, it's this kind of stuff happens. Uh, why would my child, who was taught not to lie, who was taught not to steal, why would they lie to me? Is it not because they're afraid of what I will do? Right? Like, when we're afraid, we will compromise our values. They've got the same values. They know it's wrong. But isn't it true that when we are afraid, we will compromise our values. That's true not just for kids. That's true for all of us. All of us. Um, when we're afraid that we're going to get found out or that we're going to look dumb, none of us want to look dumb, um, or we're going to look out of place that we won't fit in, we will embellish a story. We know lying is not good, but we'll embellish the story. Uh, even though that's a betrayal of our values. When we are afraid that, um, oh no, they, if they knew this about me, they would not accept me, we cover it up. We hide it. Uh, when we are afraid, we are willing to compromise our values. Um, here's a silly example. Uh, I was reviewing my sermon last night at like nine o'clock, uh, eight o'clock, nine o'clock, and I had so I had made a cup of tea. Kids are all like done with their. The bedroom routine is a whole process. Okay, so once that process is done, uh, I open my computer and I'm looking over my notes, and 
I have one light on in the house and a cup of tea. And as I'm sitting there, I see something over my left shoulder. And then I see it again. And I realize, that's a bat. We got a bat in our house. And so I, 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 uh, I had a bat in my house, and I behaved really heroically. <laughs> one of those things is true. <laughs> Lies of help. Uh, yeah, I uh, betrayed my value of man uh, for like I was, uh, there's a bat in my house. By the way, I posted it on Facebook. I, um, uh, I, you all have like MacGyver strategies with bats. <laughs> like all you need is a, is a butterfly net, a sock with a tennis ball in, <laughs> and a baseball glove. One guy told me he sucked it up with a shop vac and then he rattled it around. <laughs> it's like... Yeah, that's closer than I want to get to this bat. Uh, <laughs> by the way, I did not get the bat last night. He's still there somewhere. Still there. When people are... My kids, we had a sleepover last night in my bedroom. It was great. It's great. I feel real rested. Uh, when people are afraid, we compromise our values. Uh, we compromise our... <laughs> that doesn't fit at all, but it's a fun story. Um, and that's what we have here. Joseph's afraid, so he's going to lie and manipulate things. Uh, perhaps it's a task. Perhaps it's he's trying to protect, but he's willing to do whatever it takes to... Uh, he's willing to... He is willing to put Benjamin in the very same spot. His worst moment in life, sold off to the Egyptians. He's willing to sell off his brother out of fear of what else might happen. I understand that. And then Judah's going to launch into a speech. Old, uh, brother Judah... The same guy whose idea it was to sell him off to the Egyptians or to the Midianites. Judah's got a speech. Now, um, we're going to save this speech for next week. The speech will turn the whole story for you. There's actually a, a question, I think, in this story that I did not think to ask about the Joseph narrative until just this year. And that question opens up the entire story of Joseph. It's a beautiful and brilliant question. Um, and... Uh, the moment, the, Ju the Judah speech with how Joseph responds to the speech. We'll go there next week. You gotta come back for that one. Um, but uh, let me take you back into the weeds in the few minutes I have. Um, and again, for people who hate the weeds, I'm sorry. Um, but the soil tells the story. The soil tells the story, especially the soil of Shechem. Abraham enters the land. He starts in Shechem. And... Uh, Throughout biblical history, this story of Shechem will appear again and again and again. When Joshua enters the land and wants to remind the new generation of the covenant that the previous generation made with God at Mount Sinai, he brings them to Shechem and he says, choose this day who you will serve. You know that, that verse? It happens at Shechem. Shechem's a big story and the soil holds the story. Uh, now, let me put the map back up. Uh, we said that this land is a good land. Why? Because of all the trade routes and all the roads that travel through Israel, uh, Judah. Uh, but you see the problem with this good land, don't you? There's a problem with it. It's awesome if you're trying to influence people. What's the problem? Right? If you're, if you're the little guy, this is a problem. Uh, uh, a metaphor I find really helpful is actually from this book. I took a picture of the book um, by a guy named Paul Wright, Dr. Paul Wright. I love the man. Uh, Paul Wright talks about the ancient world as a world of cats and mice. Uh, remember the old Tom and Jerry cartoons? 
My son's like getting into them, which I know it's violent, but it's awesome. Um, Tom and Jerry. Uh, cats and mice behave differently. Cats are territorial. If you keep a cat happy and fed, uh, cats will kind of like lay down and they're at peace as long as they're happy and fed. Um, mice, on the other hand, are scrappy. They run along the side of the floorboard. They live in holes. They're hard to catch, right? Like mice are scrappy. They often live off of the crumbs of the cats. In the ancient world, these empires are your cats. Babylon's a cat. Persia, Assyria, Egypt, they're the big cats. And as long as they're lying, as long as they're full and they're happy, they leave the mice of Israel alone. But as soon as they get a little power hungry, a little bit more, as soon as the Assyrians gather enough people that they think, I think we can take on the, the Egyptians. Who are the first mice that are in their way that they got to gobble up? Israel, we got to take the road. Again, they don't want the land. The land is not good land if you're trying to build an empire. They need the road. And so Israel is just a byproduct of their swoop down to the south. Uh, now, the first giant cat that um, we'll try to take on is the cat of Assyria. Um, this is a, about a thousand years after Josh, uh, sorry, after Joseph. Assyria becomes a major cat. Like they're a big cat, uh, they're like a lion. Love my lions. Um, they're like a lion, and they're uh, the mice. Little Patrick down here thinks he can defend, but he can't defend because the lions are coming. They're going to bite your kneecaps. I don't like the metaphor because I don't like making the lions a bad guy. But anyway, the Assyrians, I think of um, Lord of the Rings when the, the, the gates of Mordor open and this mean army comes out. The Assyrians come in, and they have an army that no one's ever seen before, and they swoop in. Uh, they lay siege to the northern part of Israel. Uh, and they, those they don't kill, uh, they haul away into slavery. And those that remain, largely the priests. It's a long story for another day, but essentially they have a bear problem. And so they need priests to pray away the bears. <laughs> so they leave some priests there. Uh, but they bring in a bunch of uh, other groups of people that they have conquered, and they force the priests to intermarry with these other people, having kids that are half Israelites and half someone else. Those kids become known as the Samaritans in your Bible. The Samaritans. Maybe a Jesus red flag is going off right now. Uh, now, after Assyria, there's another major big cat that says, hey, we can take Assyria. They're known as the Babylonians. The Babylonians come in and they finish off what Assyria started. They target especially the south, what is known as Judah. They destroy the temple and they haul these Judeans off to Babylon. The Judeans have a problem because if we are now slaves in another land with no temple, we are at risk, one generation away from losing all of the biblical stories, all of the stories of God. So it's in Babylon that they say, we got to write the stories down. Your Bible is in your hands, the Old Testament, because in Babylon, they said, we got to write the stories down. It's in Babylon that they said, we got to start gathering. We can't go to the temple. Let's gather together in gatherings we'll call synagogues, gathering spaces. Uh, it's in Babylon that they begin memorizing the scriptures. It's in Babylon that the Judeans are first referred to as Jews. There's a new big cat that comes on the scene. They're bigger than Babylon. They're known as the Persians. Are you following this history a little bit? 
Humor me. Yeah, we love this. Okay, uh, I love this. Uh, the Persians come on the scene, and the Persians, they take over even more. They take over the Babylonians. They take over even more land, and they realize that there's all these foreign people groups living in Babylon, and they say to them, do you want to be here? Some say yes. Babylon's kind of nice. Look at all the green. Look at the farmland. We're doing okay. Others say no, no. We've been working hard to keep our national heritage alive in Babylon. Please let us go back home. And the Persians say, yeah, of course. Like, we own it all anyway. If you want to go back home, go ahead. And you could even worship your God back home. We don't care. So they send a group back home. Then they send a second group back home. The second group contains two men, a guy named Ezra and a guy named Nehemiah. They, as one of their first priorities, say, we got to rebuild the temple. So they begin rebuilding the temple. Uh, now, from while they're rebuilding the temple, a dude from the south comes down. His name is Sanballat. He comes down and he says, hey, guys, welcome back. Who are you? My name is Sanballat. I come from north. I'm from Samaria. I'm from the Israelites that were left behind after Assyria came in. I would like to help you build the temple. And uh, Ezra and Nehemiah say, no, you don't. No, no way. How do we trust you? You're half-breeds. You, you got a little bit of Israelite in you, but you also got a little bit of Assyria in you. We can't trust you. We cannot lose our story. You can understand where they're coming from, right? Fear makes us betray our values, and the fear of losing our national identity will make us betray our values. So they are afraid, and they say, you can't build the temple. Sanballat goes, okay, fine. I'll build my own temple. So while the Jews are building a temple in Jerusalem, Sanballat begins rebuilding another temple in a city called, the soil holds the story, in Shechem. Flash forward another 700 or so years, Jesus comes on the scene. And Jesus is in Jerusalem for the festival of Passover. And he's got to make his way back home to Capernaum after the festival. And the scripture tells us that he has to go through Samaria, this land. Um, why does he have to? He actually doesn't have to. Most Jews traveled down the road to Jericho, crossed the Jordan River, traveled on the other side all to avoid the Samaritans. They hated the Samaritans. But Jesus takes the patriarch's way. Why? Well, there's a divine appointment God has for him. He sees a woman. John, his disciple, records the story. John 4. He sees a woman. She's at a well. It's the middle of the day. Why is she at the well? She's hurting. She's hurting. And uh, they have a conversation. Jesus sees her. She sees him. And um, at some point, she asks the question that's got to be hanging in the air. We're not the same. You're a Jew. I'm a Samaritan. Uh, she frames it this way. She says, Our ancestors worshiped on this mountain, Shechem, but you Jews claim that the place where we must worship is Jerusalem, that mountain. Woman, Jesus replied, believe me, a time is coming when you will worship the Father neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem. Notice he doesn't say, what you're doing isn't real worship. All the other Jews did. You're not really worshiping Yahweh. You're in Shechem. God wants to be worshiped in Jerusalem. He, does, he affirms that this is worship. And what we're doing that is worship. But if you think it only can happen at a place, 
you're missing it. Yet a time is coming and has now come when the true worshipers will worship the Father in the spirit and in truth. For they are the kind of worshipers the Father seeks. God is spirit and his worshipers must worship in the spirit and in truth. And the woman feels seen. He sees me. He knows me. Why? Because he can see where I'm different than him and he still accepts me. When we're afraid, it's easy to compromise our values. And the soil of our shared history is often soaked with the blood and the tears of people we didn't understand. And because we didn't understand them, we were willing to sacrifice our value to love and serve because we didn't get them. Or the soil is soaked with the blood of those that were the lies and the cover-up that we've, we've covered it up again and again because we're afraid of being found out. The PS to that story that I think is the best part of the whole story. The woman goes back. She tells all of her friends about Jesus. This guy sees me. And then the disciples come, Jesus' disciples. They've been doing something. Uh, They come back, and Jesus says this. Don't you have a saying? It's still four months until harvest. I tell you, open your eyes and look into the fields. They are ripe for the harvest. Now, we just witnessed a really big moment. Why is Jesus talking about farming? Uh, That language, the fields are ripe for the harvest. Why, Why that? It's actually not what it says in the original language. The Greek language, the word is lukos. It means white. Look at, the, look at the fields. They are white for the harvest. Translators say when wheat turns like at full crop, it's yellow. It's not white. Why does Jesus say it's white for the harvest? Here's where a theology of place is so important. The Samaritans, as a way of preserving their history, decided that during the festival season... There's actually still a group of Samaritans that worship in Shechem to this day. They would begin wearing white clothes, the symbol of their freedom. And so Samaritans, every year after Passover, Jesus is heading north after Passover, would wear white from Passover to Pentecost as a way of celebrating their freedom. Jesus says to his disciples, look at the fields. They're white. They're white. Where are the workers? You pass by every year. You take the road around them. Look at them. They're hurting. They're Benjamins. They're Josephs. They're hurting. He meets a woman at a well. Historians argue that it's probably the same well Joseph is betrayed in. He's sold in. Look at them. They're hurting. One of the things we practice as a church in what we do on Sundays is reminding ourselves that, yes, the mission is for us. Absolutely. For those of us who are hurting, God, you need to know that God loves you, loves you dearly. But he also challenges us to be the people who go to those who are hurting. Uh, communion is one of the ways we practice the remembrance of who we are and who God has called us to be. And it's the reminder that we are to go. Um, at South Arbor, we have four stations uh, in the front here. We have two on the edges that have a gluten-free option. And then in the middle, they do not. Um, Pretty simple, we'll, you'll come forward when you're ready uh, and you take the bread and dip it into the juice. If you're uncomfortable with this, that's okay. Um, you, can ha- you can stay seated. Uh, uh, or if you need some assistance, Rob Houseman in the back will, would love to serve you and uh, we'll take communion together. Um, let, me, let me have a word of prayer. Uh, Lord, uh, 
would the soil of our own story be loaded with layers of meaning? And would you be on every page, Jesus? Would you be on every page? We love you and we pray this in your name. Amen. We hope that this week's message has brought you both some challenge and some blessing. For more information about how you can become a part of the South Harbor Church community, find us on the web at www.southharbor.org or find us on Facebook and Instagram at South Harbor Church. And on Sunday mornings, you can find our service streamed live at 10 a.m. on our Facebook page. And so from all of us here at South Harbor and the Harbor Churches, we want to wish you a blessed week.